0: Welcome back to New Books in Sociology, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Sarah Patterson, and today we'll be talking with Chris Clearfield about his new book with co-author Androsh Tilchik, Meltdown, Why Our Systems Fail and What We Can Do About It. Welcome to the show, Chris. Hi, thanks for having me. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your co-author?
1: Sure. Um, So Andras and I have um, very different professional backgrounds, very different um, kind of ways that we we came to this book. I used to be a derivatives trader on Wall Street. um, So I traded during the financial crisis. I was a science nerd as an undergrad and then thought I was going to go to grad school, but ended up getting waylaid by by finance. And so I came to this topic with kind of, I would say, an appreciation of of systems and failure, and also an interest in kind of why some organizations seem to make better decisions than others. Um, Andras is a, a sociologist, so he has his PhD. He teaches it at, at the University of Toronto's uh, Rotman School of Management, their business school, and so he's somebody who you know actually really has, in a rigorous way, um, looked at how organizations behave and, and kind of how they make the kind of decisions they do, how culture influences these things. And so, you know, together we, we came to this topic and we started exploring these questions around, um, you know, why there are these big failures in the world and which we sort of see all around us, what causes them to happen and, and what, why do some organizations do better than others at at managing them and sort of what can we learn from that?
0: So how did this book come about for you guys in particular?
1: Well, um, Andres and I started working together. Uh, We started doing consulting stuff together. We had a couple of um, interesting projects that kind of came came around as he and I started to think about these issues. Um, And as part of that, we were doing some, you know, trying to really make sure our thinking was rigorous, trying to sort of, you know, come up with a a framework and kind of quantify how these things worked. And so we were doing basically a bunch of research together um, and also writing some things. And uh, someone suggested that we write a book proposal for the Financial Times and McKinsey. They run they have their business book of the year contest, which they run jointly, uh, but one of the components of that is a component for book proposals where uh, authors under 35, I think it is, can write a book proposal and submit to the contest and so we decided to do that we entered um and we ended up winning for what what turned out to be a proposal that led to to this book to meltdown
0: okay so the book is broken down into two parts first why our systems fail and the second part is what we can do about it so let's start with the washington metro train 112 example that you give can you tell us why you start with that and sort of how that sets the stage for your book
1: Sure. Yeah. So the crash of Metro Train 112, and this is the the Washington area uh, Metro Transit Authority, which is also called WMATA. And I, I might slip into and call it WMATA, instead of just a metro, because it's sort of embedded in my brain at this point, um, having done this research on it. So, you know, Washington, D.C. runs a big metro system. Um, It runs a metro system that has um, suffered its share of challenges, kind of from an engineering perspective, but also from a cultural perspective and a a governance perspective. And so the, the book kind of opens with this story about a collision between these two trains that happen you know on a day that's clear there's no adverse weather conditions there's sort of really nothing nothing out of the ordinary going on um and yet these two trains collide and they collide in a system that in theory has been built to make it impossible for trains to collide there's you know track sensors and things like this that track the trains and are supposed to make it so they they automatically break uh, if they get too close to each other. And that didn't happen. And so we start the book with that. And we kind of put a just sort of a placeholder because it is really the classic type of accident that we are talking about. It's an accident that doesn't come from one huge failure, but come from this series of small failures. And a little bit of the book is sort of a detective story kind of along with going along with those engineers to try to, as they sort of try to figure out what caused this, this collision that, that should have been impossible.
0: So you have this really great quote early on in the book from an NPR producer, and she says, I think in moments like these, you come to realize two things, how tiny and vulnerable we are in this world of massive machines we've built, and how ignorant we are of that vulnerability. So I was hoping you could explain really what you were using that quote to illustrate and talk about Three Mile Island.
1: Sure. Yeah. So th- the Three Mile Island accident was obviously a landmark accident in, in the U.S. nuclear industry. Um, you know, the, the core of the power plant melted down. No lives were lost, uh, kind of approximately, but it was, you know, a big accident, big deal, costly, obviously got, got the, you know, garnered national attention. And so, the what, one of the really interesting things about the accident was the kind of the way it was investigated. And um, the sociologist who you mentioned, Charles Perot, who goes by Chick, was his nickname. So Charles Perot was kind of a, I would say, no pun intended, a dyed-in-the-wool organizational sociologist. I mean, before he came to work on Three Mile Island, he worked on you know things like organization in New England textile mills and 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 things like that. So I mean really a sociologist sociologist. And then one of the people on the um the commission investigating the Three Mile Island accident was herself a sociologist, somebody who had been who had worked for O I think he had been part of the the hiring committee that hired her. Um, at some point in her career. And she said, you know, I know there's a bunch of engineers who are going to be looking at this, but, but this also seems like an organizational accident. And there's one person who knows organizations, it's, it's Chick Perot. And so Perot, you know, was a kind of a, I would say a parallel part of this, of this investigation. He looked at all of the documents. He looked at um, the, you know, looked into the accident, read transcripts of hearings and things like that. And the official conclusion of the investigation committee was that the, this accident was a result of operator error. That the the operators at Three Mile Island, you know, they they did the wrong things um, in response to to the kind of crisis and to the, the the problem with the plant, and that that exacerbated the issue. But what Perot saw when he looked at this was that there was actually no way of understanding the kind of the logic of this accident you know, except in retrospect. So while things were going, there was no way for the operators to understand what the causes were. Um, And so what Perot thought was basically that blaming the operators was kind of a cheap, cheap shot, that this was a, this was a a systems failure, fundamentally. Um, It was a failure that didn't come from, you know, one huge problem, but came from this kind of incomprehensible interaction of lots of small problems. And, so he wrote a report about this, and then he was so um, engaged in this topic that he and a, a group of graduate students spent you know, the next three or four years just looking at disasters of different kinds and analyzing them. And it, he was really, Perot and, and his group's insight, they came up with this way of kind of classifying the world in terms of complexity and, and what he called tight coupling, which was a term borrowed from engineering. And so looking at how complexity and tight coupling contributed to these kind of accidents. Um, And maybe it'd be helpful for me to just sort of define what each of those things are. Uh, So in Perot's kind of use of the term, complexity is basically how many unexpected interactions are potential in the system. So it's sort of a measure of the number of connections in the system, um, but also a measure of how difficult it is for the people working in the system to understand what's going on. So Uh, a nuclear power plant is a great example of that because you can't just send somebody into the core to see what's happening, right? You have to rely on all of these indirect measures like temperature and pressure and things like that. Um, And so that's kind of complexity in a nutshell. And and tight coupling is this other axis, which is it's a term borrowed from engineering. It basically means how much buffer there is in the system. If something starts to fail, how likely it is that things will, will keep failing and will escalate. Um, and again, nuclear power classic system with tight coupling, you know. Um, you can't sort of you can't undo the reaction right? I mean once the reaction starts, there's decay heat, there are all these things that the core kind of needs to be cooled. and so once the the accident starts to happen at Three Mile Island or or in any nuclear power plant, um, you really can't put the genie back in the bottle. you can't sort of wind back the clock and and fix things. And so it was really kind of using this lens that Perot thought of complexity and tight coupling as as these two kind of major factors that made these accidents, um, much more likely. And, and Perot makes the case, uh, that in some cases it makes them inevitable. And what, what kind of, I think what we have built on with his work is sort of looking at, you know, when Perot did his analysis, there just weren't that many systems that were both complex and tightly coupled, but now in our modern age, they're just, they're, they're all over the place. There's tons of them from our cars and our computers and social media, um, you know, even to to things like just the fact that we, we carry these constantly interconnected devices, internet connected devices with us all the time.
0: So talk to us about Deepwater Horizon and how this ties to the ideas of complexity and uh, systems being tightly coupled.
1: So Deepwater Horizon was was BP's big oil spill and explosion in, in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, and that accident had, you know, a bunch of different causes. Um, but you know, complexity and and tight coupling are sort of right there front and center. You know, Deepwater Horizon was not just a clever name. I mean, this was deepwater drilling uh, just before working on the the well that uh, ultimately destroyed the rig and caused the oil spill. Deepwater Horizon had dug the deepest well that humans had ever dug in history. And so, um, you know, we're talking about a very inhospitable environment. Again, something where you can't send somebody in the operators have to rely on all of these indirect indicators to understand what's going on. Uh, and then, you know, once the oil spill starts, there's nowhere for the oil to go but up, right? It's this very tightly coupled system. And we saw, if you remember, I mean, while this accident was happening, it was like day by day, there were months where BP was trying one thing after another to try to, to plug up this well and to, to stop this leak. Um, and so, I mean, it's an example of a system that, you know, even, um, a couple of decades ago, uh, if you were thinking about oil drilling, you would often be thinking about platforms in shallower water or, you know, onshore drilling activities that could themselves have, pro- have problems, but they were also a little bit simpler and a little bit less tightly coupled.
0: So, another quote I really liked that you had in the book was One way to hide a log is to put it in the woods. Yes. So, here you talk about Comple- hiding complexity in systems and you give this specific example of enron so i was hoping you could talk to us more about that yeah
1: so enron is really an interesting example and there's been you know so much good reporting done on enron and and so much good investigation on it what we did when we looked at enron was we sort of took it from a slightly different angle we looked at um Kind of not just what had happened in the kind of particulars of the, the fraud that the executives at Enron perpetrated, but we sort of looked at it from, from the question of, you know, why were they able to, to perpetrate this fraud? And, and so, you know, it turns out that what Enron had done from kind of a corporate finance perspective or a, a corporate organization perspective is they had set up all of these entities and what all of these different individual entities let them do was developed this incredibly complex sort of set of, um, internal transactions. And and what that set of transactions let them do is it let them, you know, hide their debt and sort of, um, fraudulently characterize, uh, loans as cash flow, basically. And, and what's interesting about Enron is, you know, if the company had been simpler, if there hadn't been all of these different things, if it hadn't been such a, such a black box, which I think is what, what drew, um, reporter Bethany McLean to it in the first place, in in part, um, they wouldn't have been able to do all of these financial machinations that let them let it look like they were making a bunch of money when, in fact, they weren't. In fact, they had just, you know, sort of put together a series of transactions that let them record um, gains on paper, but not, you know, not in the real world. And and so complexity, in a sense, really let them get away with this wrongdoing and, and kind of created the opportunity for it and also also let them hide it.
0: So then you move into the part of the book you call conquering complexity, and here you give us a few examples, such as the La La Land debacle at the Oscars, um, and also kind of an interesting example from airplanes, which uh, are side sticks, which you can explain more. But here you're talking about sort of that there's value in elegant design, but there's also value in being able to see the state of a system simply by looking at it.
1: Let me take a step back for just a second before we kind of dive into that, because I think you know, one of the things that is true about, about systems in our world is that they are relatively hard to change, right? They're relatively hard to, hard to deal with. So, you know, there are lots of businesses that have lots of systems in them. There's lots of organizations like universities and things like this that have systems that come from their organizational culture, come from even, you know, specific IT products that they have and that they use. Um, so there is a lot that goes into defining a system. So we talk some in the book about, how we can make our systems better, how we can add transparency and, and kind of redesign them. But we also talk a lot about the human element. So how we can use tools to better understand our systems. And then we talk quite a bit about the organizational element. You know, what kind of organizations end up being good at managing these kind of complex systems and, and how do the managers and leaders in those organizations behave in a way that's different from an organization that might struggle. Uh, to deal with complexity. And so what you're asking about is kind of where we start this discussion about the solutions, which is, well, okay, if we're talking about complexity, what is the antidote to complexity? How can we design our systems so that uh, we're able to manage them better? And it, and it turns out that one of the antidotes to complexity isn't simplicity. It's in fact, transparency. It's being able to understand what's going on in the system in a way that, that's sort of easy uh, to, to grasp real time. And so the example about the the Airbus and the, the side sticks in the Airbus, um, we kind of draw a contrast between the cockpit of an Airbus airplane and the cockpit of, of a Boeing airplane. And, you know, this sounds very, very sort of high industrial, you know, thinking about, I mean, what could be more specialized than designing an airplane? But it turns out that there are lots of lessons in here for those of us who even just, you know, run kind of normal projects on the day to day. And so and you look at the Cockpit of an Airbus airplane, the, the flight deck of an Airbus. It's very, very elegant. The, you know, everything is very beautifully laid out. Um, there is, there are these little elegant side sticks. They look like kind of video game controllers that are a um, uh, kind of on the outboard parts of the airplane. So to the left of the captain in the left seat, and and to the right of the first officer in the right seat. And these little side sticks, they're they're great. I mean, they're they're computer controlled. They're tied to the airplane in a very clever way. Um, but they're also small and, and that means they're out of the way, which seems like a nice design feature, but it also means it's hard to understand what's going on in the cockpit. It's hard to see, um, when the, when the, you know, when one of the pilots moves the stick a certain way, the other pilot's stick doesn't move. So it's hard for them to develop a shared mental model, especially when there's some kind of crisis going on. Um, now, if you contrast that with the cockpit of the Boeing, we look at a Boeing 737, but they're they're pretty um, universal. There's this big W-shaped control column that sits right in front of each of the pilots. It's like three foot high, a foot and a half wide, and it, they move in tandem. So when one pilot pulls back on on their control yoke, the other pilot gets hit in the stomach with it. Um, you know, it's so sort of visceral, and, and it's so big, even that there's a little slit cut out in the seats of the seats in front of the pilots. Um, And so it is very easy for each of the pilots to tell what the other is doing and and kind of therefore what the other is thinking. So if a pilot pulls back and that's not the appropriate thing, the other pilot can can push the yoke forward um, and sort of, you know, physically understand what's going on and easily develop this this model, this shared mental model. Uh, And that sounds like kind of a small thing. And and, you know, these these big yokes in the Boeing, they seem really inelegant. You know, we talked with one pilot who talks about um, constantly spilling his lunch over his shirt because the other pilot does something with the control yoke and he gets whacked with it. But it has this beautiful feature of making the system incredibly transparent, and and that lack of transparency, in fact, has been implicated in a couple of. Um, very serious Airbus accidents where everybody on board uh, the airplane has died because one pilot was doing the wrong thing and the other pilot couldn't under they couldn't tell that because they didn't have access to that sort of shared mental model. That's a very big industrial system. That cockpit example is a very big industrial system, but we actually saw the same thing happen at the Oscars where the wrong film was announced as the winner of best picture. And it was because that one of the presenters had been given the wrong envelope backstage. And and the envelope, when you look at it, has this very subtle kind of beautiful gold lettering on it i mean it's 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 really beautiful, but um it's very hard to see what the category is on the envelope and therefore it's easy to make this kind of error of confusion, particularly in the the environment of you know a live award show and live television and so this mistake was made. Um, there were a bunch of other things that that went into that. It's not just the envelope design was was sort of overly elegant. But one of the things they did the next year to um, revise the, the their their approach to this complex system is they just made the design on the envelope very simple. You know, it says, best picture these kind of big ugly letters and then it says it again it says it twice on the envelope um, and so it's this really nice example of a simple kind of clear design giving us transparency in, in a real way and kind of acting as a, a, a help in this complex system
0: Okay, so then in the next chapter, you give out the survey to students, and you ask two different versions of this question, and the first asks about their opinions about risks that might come up, and the second says, you know, two years later, something bad has actually come up, and you get very different answers in terms of what people um, bring up. So I was hoping that you could talk more about that and this next chapter
1: this is an interesting phenomenon that you're talking about, which is there's something we can actually do. And this is kind of one of the cognitive tools, one of the ways that we can we can change the way that people think about these complex systems um, to sort of help us as humans be able to better manage them. And and one of the tools that was invented by a, a psychologist called Gary Klein um, is something called the premortem. Um, and, and the premortem, it sounds like a very trivial intervention, but basically what the premortem is is you know, we've all heard of a postmortem, right? Where we we're kind of after something bad has happened in an organization or a team or whatever. We we kind of dig in and say, okay, well, what went wrong? What happened? Um, the the chief limitation of the postmortem, of course, is that the bad thing has already happened. The premortem, which is Gary Klein's insight, is that we can before we're taking on a big project or or starting a new event or or something like that, um, we can just take a few minutes and get the group of people that are involved together and say okay, everyone, let's imagine that it's six months from now, we've been working on this project for six months. And it becomes very clear that this thing is a total disaster, that we've made all these mistakes. In fact, it's so bad that we don't even want to look at each other anymore. Like we don't even want to be on a project team together. So it's this really, this really awful situation. Now, everybody come up with a reason, a couple of reasons for what led to this big, huge failure. Why did we fail in this project? And so if you're working with a team, you can do this as an individual, but if you're working as a team, you know, everybody takes a minute, goes around the room, everybody takes a minute and writes a couple of things on their, on their piece of paper. You know, what are the stories that led to this failure? And then you go around the room and you get everybody to share one of the explanations for this failure. One of the reasons for, for the, this kind of big failure. Um, and what the research shows is this this taps into something called perspective hindsight which is basically you know we humans are very good at telling a story um and when you compare this kind of premortem approach with the, a simple approach to brainstorming what you find is that it really engages our kind of human ability for storytelling and so we are more likely to come up with um, not only a broader set of things that cause this failure but also a more specific set of things that cause this failure and and the other thing that happens is you know by Kind of embedding this in a group dynamic in a group culture, we shift the discussion from like, okay, how can we be smart and come up with solutions to all right well i how, how can I look smart by coming up with you know these kind of realistic and impactful ways that this project might fail um, and so yeah so it's this it's this powerful approach that gives us um, in a couple of different ways um, really uh, gives us a an ability to come up with the uh, kind of a a good set of reasons why things might fail. And And it turns out to be a powerful technique in lots of different contexts.
0: So then you bring up a really important and still relevant example, which is the Flint, Michigan water crisis. And here you talk about how when there isn't enough information, we tend to fill it in and feedback loops are really important, especially for reading warning signs. So I was hoping you could talk more about this example
1: sure sure and you know flint is such a complex issue and and you know we only kind of look at a pretty thin slice of it i mean you know flint is an issue of race and class um and you know kind of a belief in the role of government and and all of these sorts of things but one of the things that when we looked at it from kind of a systems perspective we saw very clearly was that the people who were in charge of safeguarding flint residents from the kind of dangers of the water supply um, were not only were they not good at looking at these weak signals of failure and interpreting them and understanding them they in fact actively you know threw out data that disagreed with their conclusions and they and they really kind of worked to suppress these voices of dissent that suggested that there might be something wrong and so it's just kind of this obviously tragic but but also fascinating example of um, what not to do when dealing with a complex system, which, you know, it turns out delivering clean, safe drinking water to people really, really is a complex system. And so when you look at what happened, um, they kind of did all the wrong things, right? They, they came up with a thesis that they, or a hypothesis about how the world worked that they stuck to very, very strongly, despite all the evidence they didn't even, not only did they not take an active effort to kind of check in, they were pretty, um, they resisted the data that they actually got when they when they happened to get data and so they kind of rather than treat um this word that that organizational scholars use called anomalizing which sounds like a really wonky word but it basically means you know treating these kind of small issues as big ones and trying to understand the root causes um the officials in in Michigan working on on the the kind of flint issue i mean by and large they um, tried to ignore and, and kind of write off all of these warning signs. And, and, you know, in a complex system, one of the hallmarks of a complex system is that you can't predict all of the ways that things are going to fail. You can't predict all of the obstacles that you might face and all the ways that things might go wrong. And so, you know, what that means is you have to pay attention. You have to let your system kind of tell you the ways it might fail. And if you don't do that, you know, we really see the, the tragedy as the result.
0: So the next thing that you bring up is that dissent within an organization is really important. So I was hoping you could talk more about that.
1: Yeah, exactly. So the, the the kind of dissent angle is interesting because one of the things that I guess there's sort of two aspects of it, right? In a complex system, it's often people that are sort of lowest in the hierarchy that are closest to the operational details right that kind of can see what's going wrong and, and can understand things that's not always the case um but that is that is often the case that's often kind of a feature of the way that we organize our our organizations and our systems and so um you know in order to understand what potentially is going wrong in a complex system you've got to work really hard to let that information from the lower levels kind of flow up to people that are making decisions and and even kind of within peer groups you've got to get that information moving um moving kind of fluidly between them and you know i think a lot of organizations they they a lot of managers have this idea that well they have an open door policy and so people can can should feel free to kind of come tell them about things but uh, what the research shows, sort of over and over again, is that an open door policy is not enough. There is so much, there are so many kind of implicit signals of hierarchy and and um, kind of group and organizational safety that we send. And that even a manager that thinks that they're very open, they're probably not perceived quite that way by by the people who are reporting up to them. And so um, it, it's kind of a big important issue. How do we get people to to speak up? in these kind of organizations basically.
0: So then you talk about diversity and I think this example that you give is really interesting um, where if you look at the board of directors Um, In terms of how many bankers are on a board of directors and bank failure, there is a serious correlation there. So I was hoping you could talk more about that example and the importance of diversity.
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, this this is one of the more surprising directions, um, surprising kind of pieces of research that that we we found while while um, researching the book, which was um, diversity actually has a pretty big role in helping us manage complex systems. And and when we talk about diversity, we are talking about um, surface level diversity. So, you know, skin color, ethnicity, gender, um, but we're also talking about diversity and expertise and professional backgrounds. And, and it turns out that both of these things really um, have an important role to play in getting groups to make better decisions. And so, again, complex environment is one where we can't you know, a priori predict all of the failures that we might see. And so we need to kind of l- learn about them throughout our l- learn about them kind of through the process of, of running and understanding our systems. And the study on on bank failures is a really fascinating one. So it's a study that looks at, you know, I think thousands of community banks over uh, a relatively long period. And what what the study finds is that if the board of directors the more bankers the board of directors have the more likely a bank is to fail and that's sort of a you know that's that's a little bit surprising right we might expect boards of directors we might expect bankers to be able to you know to be good at running a bank but it turns out that that what happens kind of the more bankers you have the the more um implicit pressure there is on people to agree to sort of say you know yes i understand this let's go forward or well this is how we've always done it and so having that group that is kind of dominated by, um, you know, a sort of monoculture of subject matter experts means that that there's less dissent and there's less discussion and there's less um, less of a willingness to say, hey, I don't understand this. We need more data before we're able to make a decision. And I think it's a fascinating example of, you know, this kind of I mean, really in the real world, how. Uh, we can see that one kind of diversity, diversity and professional background in this case, um, really makes a tremendous difference. And it's a, it's a, yeah, it's a really fascinating line of research.
0: So then you give the example of the Challenger explosion and what you call the normalization of deviance. So I was hoping you could explain that and tell us more about that.
1: Well, so normalization of deviance is this this term that was um, coined and identified by Diane Vaughn, who's a, a sociologist um, who looked at the space shuttle Challenger explosion. Um, and I think what's, what's the, the basic idea of normalization of deviance is that in complex systems, Murphy's Law is wrong, it turns out, right? Most of the time, if we take a shortcut or we do something wrong, there aren't really any consequences to it. We just sort of we we very often get lucky. You know, it's like if you don't wear your seatbelt, most of the time you're going to be fine. Most of the time you don't get into an accident. And so normalization of deviance is this idea that if we deviate from the kind of way that we're, we are sort of supposed to operate or the way that procedures are supposed to operate and there aren't consequences, then we get more and more comfortable with that deviation and that can kind of, you know, sort of build on itself. And so Diane Vaughn wrote um, an amazing book, um, kind of looking at the The Challenger launch decision and and kind of looking at why um, you know why that happened uh, why why the Challenger tragedy happened and and normalization of deviance was a big part of the kind of organizational factors that that she uh, saw went into this and the cultural factors that went into it. Um, It turns out kind of tragically the same thing happened. Um, Normalization of deviance was also a big part of the Columbia space shuttle disaster a couple of years later and so. Um it turns out that normalization of deviance was also a big part of the Columbia Space Shuttle disaster which was decades later. And so after the loss of Columbia what what NASA did was they looked at um kind of how they could prevent normalization of deviance from a um from kind of an organizational perspective. And so one of the things we did was we went and we we talked with managers at um Jet Propulsion Labs, which is kind of a an institution that builds, you know, they do amazing things, right? They build um, uh, spacecraft that that go and drive around on the surface of Mars. And so uh, they have a really challenging job, as you might imagine. And one of the ways that they have tried to sort of pioneer things from a risk management perspective is they've really created a a very um, clever setup where they have, um, in addition to, say, having a project team who is working on launching a particular mission to Mars or or looking at the, you know, what science needs to be included on and things like that. They also have a risk group who essentially owns the risk of the mission and and that risk group, they are kind of in parallel with with the sort of project teams, but they have a different perspective. They act as, as kind of outsiders and they're able to to sort of balance the production pressures with the kind of need to get the mission done in a way that is not minimizing risk, but in a way that is taking acceptable risk. And so it's really um, uh, an, you know, kind of an, in, an insightful way of organizationally trying to, to combat this this normalization of deviance, which is, you know, a fairly um, challenging and, and thing to, to work with.
0: So then you talk about a really important cycle in your book and you quote Christensen who says, the most striking thing about these teams was the pattern, the cycle of moving from task to monitoring to diagnosis and then back to tasks again. So I was hoping you could talk more about this cycle and these examples that you give in this chapter.
1: It's totally fascinating. Um, Marlis Christensen is um, a really amazing and interesting researcher um, who was a medical doctor and then went and got her PhD. Uh, in organizational behavior or sociology, and as part of her research, she was able to look at teams of medical people, trauma teams, um, working with an asthmatic trauma case. But the the kind of cool thing was, is it was a medical mannequin, so um, she was able to look at a bunch of different teams dealing with the same problem and look at you know how some teams were able to to manage that crisis. And get through it and others weren't. And and what she found was was exactly what you were just saying. That the teams that were most effective at at solving this problem, they were able to sort of do this kind of iterative cycle where they came up with a theory, they did some kind of tasks to try and validate that theory, and then they monitored what was happening and sort of saw if that worked well or didn't. The kind of the insight here is that the teams that did the best were the teams that were able to sort of rapidly and regularly cycle between that. So they didn't just get stuck doing tasks like checking different, you know, um, different breathing indications, for example, or trying different interventions. They went and they did a task and then they saw how it worked and then they made a theory and and so on and so forth. And so it's exactly as you said, the teams that, that were successful at this were the ones that didn't get in, you know, just didn't get stuck in the weeds trying thing after thing without actually seeing if it worked and not kind of developing their their hypotheses. And I think what's amazing about this this research is that, you know, in the ER, uh, where, where Marlis looks at this, you're talking about something on the order of, of kind of minutes. But this also really applies in the real world, too, right? Many of the projects that lots of us undertake, whether we're, you know, a, a business person kind of expanding, say, a local bakery, or we're somebody starting a new, um, you know, a new line of research in our PhD, um, or we're a business person, you know, thinking about expanding to a new country, kind of regardless of the scale, many of us face these kind of problems where it's exactly what's going to work. And so we need to try something, see what happens, kind of develop a, a, a theory and then and then iterate on that.
0: Great, thanks for all of that. So, what are your big takeaways for the reader?
1: I think there's really a big kind of thing embedded in this in this book, which is, um, you know, it turns out that a lot of the systems around us are complex in this way that makes them more prone to failure. And I think a lot of us, though we may not think of it this way in our daily lives, are dealing with these kind of systems. Whether we are somebody who you know works on a team or runs a business or, um, you know, even if we're just thinking about this stuff in the context of our home um, and getting good at this stuff is, it's really important. We don't necessarily think that, so the environmental protection, the the Michigan Department of Environmental Quality, you know, I don't think those people went to work every day thinking, wow, we're managing this big complex system. You know, people's lives are at stake. We need to, we need to be approaching this in, in, in the right way. I don't think they they thought of, I think they thought of themselves basically as project managers running, you know, some kind of relatively straightforward project. And the truth is that most of the world is not straightforward in that way anymore. And that there are really big consequences to getting this wrong. So, you know, even if we're talking about. um it may not be loss of life, although that comes up in lots more context than we might expect. But even if we're talking about, you know, a financial shock, that means that people in our company are are um, going to be laid off or you know have to look for a new job or things like that. So I guess the the kind of the challenge with this stuff is that it's really everywhere, and and many of us are embedded in complex systems, even though we don't realize it. The good news, I think, is that because these systems fail in similar ways. There is a common set of solutions that really um, helps us get better at at managing them and and figuring these things out.
0: Great. So what are you guys working on now?
1: We're working on a bunch of different things. Um, One of the things we're working on in kind of a real serious way is how do we get this message to as many people as possible? And so, you know, that's not only doing great podcasts like this, but also thinking about, you know, how we can make this advice and embed it help companies embed it in their operating culture and their and their organization culture we're also of course you know thinking about the next kind of big project we want to work on um Andras has just gone on parental leave so there's a little bit of a of a buffer for us um to not have to jump immediately into the into the next thing but but who knows we're kind of we we, we really loved each of us um love this approach of kind of digging deep into into this set of research and and trying to create a book that was um you know both practical and and engaging for as wide of an audience as possible and so yeah we're really thinking about what the what what the next step is for us
0: great well thank you for being with us today
1: yeah thanks for having me it was really really great.
0: today we've been talking about meltdown why our systems fail and what we can do about it with co-authors chris clearfield and andras tilchik Check us out next time on New Books and Sociology on the New Books Network.